So I want to start off by sharing with you guys a story about something that happened in my life years and years ago. Some of you might have heard this years ago in a sermon illustration, but most of you, I think, did not. But believe it or not, when I was in high school, years and years ago, I played basketball. And uh, <laughs> all right, all right, I see how this is going to go. I actually, all four years of high school, my freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior year played basketball. My freshman year, I started on our freshman team. And my sophomore, junior, and senior year, I started on our varsity team in basketball. And uh, we were a smaller school from my sophomore through senior year, public school my freshman year. And uh, when I graduated high school, I went to college expecting to play basketball in college. Brutal audience tonight with the laughter. Brutal. And so I went to college, and when I was there, we started off playing intramurals where we would just play pickup games, and, and the season hadn't started yet. Tryouts hadn't happened yet. We weren't really doing anything organized yet for the basketball team, and so we were just playing pickup basketball. And, and I remember one of the first days that I was in the gym there feeling pretty confident about myself. Um, a buddy of mine, whose name is Jake, was also in the gym, and Jake was about an inch maybe an inch or a half taller than me. He was probably about 5'10". And uh, it's a little joke. He was probably, he was probably about 5'6", five, 5'7". Five, and he was there and he was shooting hoops and he was, you know, we were talking, we were interacting. And I'm like, so you trying out for the ba- or basketball team? He's like, absolutely, are you? And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I'm gonna try out too. And we're shaking hands and he's like, oh, so did you play in high school? I'm like, yeah, I'm, where are you from? He was from Florida. So Jake proceeds to throw himself a lob bounce it, you know how you like self like bounce it so it goes up the hoop and he jumps and dunks the ball. And I'm standing at the three point line like what is this sorcery that I just saw? That this guy's my height and he's throwing it down. And so my confidence level shot really low when it came time for tryouts watching Jake as the same height as me. And then I started watching these other guys that were much taller than me doing the same sorts of things and their skill level was far past mine. Well, to make a long story short, I tried out for the team. Went through all of the conditioning phase of it, which is when you don't practice with a basketball. You just run. And I made it through that, probably because we didn't have a basketball yet. And so I made it through all of that. And it gets time for cuts. And so do you ever have someone that you can tell they care about you and they like you and they want to tell you something, but they don't know how to tell you it? You ever have that happen where someone's beaten around the bush and they're not telling you what you need to hear and they're just kind of trying to get there. So I walk into the coach's office and he and I remain friends to this day. I just saw him a couple weeks ago. I was playing at a charity golf thing in, in New York at the Conklin Players Club there and he was there and we shook hands, hugged each other. We remained good friends. But anyhow, he's sitting in, in his office and I go into his office and he says, Bruce, sit, sit down. So I'm sitting there and he said, listen, he's like, you know, we have to make cuts on the team. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking, surely not me, right? That's in my mind. And he's like, um, you know, you're, you hustle. You're a hustler. He's like, you, you always give 100%. He's like, and we love that. And I'm, and I'm like slowly getting it sitting in like, this is not how this conversation is supposed to start. And he's like, but some of the guys on the team that are really tall can get away without being the fastest guy on the court. And he's like, and some of the shorter guys, they can get away with it because they are the fastest guys on the court. 
the difficulty with you is as much as you hustle is that you're short, but you're also slow. And so we don't really have a spot for you. And I'm like, thanks a lot. Like the whole time though, all I'm thinking is get to the, get to the meat of the matter here. Just tell me I didn't make the team, right? Just come out and tell me, be straight with me. Have you ever found yourself with like a conversation like that? You know, something's coming. And instead of just ripping the bandaid off and letting everything out and just addressing it head on, it's kind of like, we're going to get there. Have you ever had that happen? Well, here, here's one of the reasons why I love the book of James. Because James is known as the wisdom literature of the New Testament. Many pastors have said that. Listen to a bunch of sermons. And pastor after pastor has referenced the book of James as the wisdom literature of the New Testament. James is a practical book where James just lays out very clear, precise instruction for our daily living. And sometimes it's hard instruction to take. Sometimes it's things that he just lays it out in a very fierce way as how he writes it, but it's necessary for us to receive it. And guys, here's what my hope is. Over these next 10 weeks as we look at the book of James, we're going to go verse by verse through James, that we would be challenged, that we would be instructed, that we would receive the practical instruction that James gives to us, and that we would live in response to that in a way that obeys God and that honors God. And so I hope you're ready for that. I know it's, it's important. I know that I'm ready for it, and I hope you're ready. And so we want to jump right into it. So let's look at James chapter 1 tonight. We're just going to do the first 12 verses. I want to start off by just reading the opening verse. It says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, Greetings. I just want to start off right there because I want to give us a little bit of backdrop to the book of James so we understand what we're studying, who it is that wrote the book of James, who he was writing to, a date, a purpose, and all that. And some of that's revealed to us right away in the opening verse. Um, first thing the author has given to us here who's the author of the book of James? James, okay? He tells us that right away. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Probably if you're familiar with the Bible or you read the New Testament, you've read the New Testament, you're familiar with one of the disciples of Jesus, the apostle of Christ by the name of James. James was the son of Zebedee, James and John, uh, the sons of Zebedee. And you'll read throughout Jesus' earthly ministry that there was a very close group of three men that were with Jesus, Peter, James, and John. That James is the brother of John, he's the son of Zebedee, and he's the one that was very close with Jesus. This is not that James. Okay, that's one James. The other James that we would see here is this is James who was the half-brother of Jesus. Okay, most are in agreement, wide agreement, that this is the half-brother of Jesus that was writing that. And I'm going to tell you why in just a moment. But I want you just to understand something from the get-go here. This is the half-brother of Jesus, James. This is who is the author of the book of James. And we actually know that for a variety of reasons. One is because the brother of John, James the brother of John, Acts chapter 12 tells us that James the brother of John was killed with the sword by Herod. uh, Acts chapter 12 says, he, speaking of Herod, killed James the brother of John with the sword. This very early on in the establishing of the church, James was killed. And so this is not that James. This is James the half-brother of Jesus. The James that offered this is the half-brother of Jesus, and we see this is clear from Scripture. First, Matthew chapter 13 tells us that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And in Matthew chapter 13, 55 to 56, the question was asked, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, speaking of Jesus? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? 
And are not all his sisters with us? James was the oldest half-brother of Jesus. It's spelled out to us in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, John established in John chapter 7 verse 5 that Jesus' own brothers initially did not believe in him. John chapter 7 verse 5, it says, not even his brothers believed in him. This includes James. And so I want you to think of this for a moment. When we read this letter penned by the half-brother of Jesus, James, initially when Jesus was walking the face of this earth, he did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. And here's why I want to tell you that. Because guys, listen, I believe in this room tonight, there are men who are in this room that although you might go to church, although you might read your Bible, although you might have made a profession that I believe you truly don't have relationship with Jesus Christ as your Savior. Neither did James, the half-brother of Jesus initially, when he first heard and saw what Jesus was doing. He did not believe. But the letter we're going to read is penned by a man who initially, his own half-brother, didn't believe in him, but then would be transformed by the grace of God. And I want you to know tonight, if you're here and you're not sure about a relationship with Christ, you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you can know him as your Savior. God can transform your heart and life. He can make you alive. He can forgive you of your sins. And he'll do it for you the same way he did it for James. That's through faith and trust in the Savior, Jesus Christ. But James initially didn't believe. John chapter 7, verse 5 but there would be a point in time when Jesus' own family would come to believe in him as Savior. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, following the ascension of Jesus, we're told that the apostles were gathered together, uh, that the disciples of Jesus were gathered together, his followers were gathered together. They were with one accord, and they were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1, there was a point in time that his own brothers did come to believe in him, as Savior. James would be included in that. And then if you continue on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul's writing and he recounts the Christ uh, that following the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the 12. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. This is very significant that Paul would mention James, the half-brother of Jesus, by name as someone that Jesus had appeared to. It identifies James as a known individual and leader in the church. They would know who Paul was referencing when they mentioned his name. Acts 15 identifies James, the half-brother of Jesus, as a leader in the Jerusalem church and a leader that people listened to and that they respected. So think of this for a moment, right? Just in this opening verse, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings. James, the author, is the half-brother of Jesus. He would believe in Christ. He would see the resurrected Christ. He would be a key and respected leader in the early church. He would be referenced by Paul in Paul's letter, and Luke would point him out as a leader in the church of Jerusalem. According to tradition, James would be martyred for his stance for Christ. Some believe it was uh, the way he was martyred, and traditionally, historically, this is what is said, is that he was thrown down from the Temple Mount to his death because of his stance for Christ and his belief in Jesus. His belief in Jesus. It's this James, the half-brother of Jesus, that's writing this great letter. And I want you to notice something. Notice in verse 1 how James introduces himself, because I think this is very telling. If you're the half-brother of Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and you're of relation to him, how many of us would be like, 
Bruce, by the way, that Bruce, the brother of Jesus, yep, that Jesus. Like, there's no, in any way, shape, or form, proclamation of self here by James. Look at what James introduces himself as, as he says he's the author. James, and what does he say? A what? A servant of God and of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the 12 tribes and the dispersion greetings. I think that opening tells us everything we need to know about James. James viewed himself as a servant of the Most High God. He viewed himself as a servant of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's how he's introduced here, and that's how he would want to be introduced here. And so James tells us that. He tells us where his heart is. Now, the, the date of this book is dated between the years of 45 to 50 AD. 45 to 50 in the year of our Lord, making it the earliest book in the New Testament scriptures that we have. So think of this. This predates Paul's letters, okay? So James is writing this to the church in its very early stages. It's dated, again, between 45 and 50 AD, making it the earliest book. Now, the recipients of it are told us here as well. Look at verse 1. James, a servant of the Lord, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Uh, some uh, translations, your translation may even say to those that are scattered abroad. The dispersion are those that are scattered. This is known as the diaspora, which is a group of, of, of Jews that were scattered abroad throughout because of persecution coming from King Herod, because of the martyrdom that was taking place, and because of the opposition that was taking place. And he says, this is to the 12 tribes in the dispersion or those that are scattered Greeting. So we have who the recipients are here. We have who the author is here. The dating of this book, very important, is established in the very early stages of the church, even predating Paul's letters. And the overarching theme of the book is practical Christian living. James is going to give practical Christian living advice and counsel here, direction for those that are in Christ Jesus, specifically to those Jews that are scattered abroad and under severe persecution. They're experiencing hardships, persecution, difficulties, uncertainties, and he's going to give them some instruction. Now, here's the thing I find very interesting. We're going to get into verses 2 and following in just a minute, and he's going to start off by talking about trials, which is what we're going to talk about tonight, okay? But what's very interesting to me, when you understand who is writing the letter, understanding that he would be martyred for his faith, understanding all that he would have observed, but also understanding the recipients are those that are scattered because of Christ. They are not in pleasant situations, any of them. They are not in situations that are like around the campfire, kumbaya, because everybody's happy-go-lucky. They're in hardship. They're in hard times. And James is still going to give them very straightforward instruction. No excuses as it relates to their obedience to what God says. If anybody would have a reason to be able to say, all right, we know what God says, but God, cut us a little bit of slack. You know right now it's hard. It's these people, okay? They're the ones. And yet James is just going to lay it out for them. Some have counted over 50 exhortations in the book of James that he's going to give to the church here. 50 exhortations and challenges he's going to give to them in this. That's why it's known as the wisdom literature of the New Testament. So I hope that brings you up to speed a little bit. I hope that gives you a little bit of backdrop. Now as we read, understand who's writing and the recipients, the hardship they would have been going through and enduring, many of them being put to death even because of their stance for Christ. Observing their brothers and sisters in Christ being put to death because of their stance for Christ. Being shunned and ridiculed and cast out society-wise because of their relationship with Christ. That's who's receiving this letter. 
So with that in mind, let's look back at the text. We're going to start again, verse 1, go right through to verse 12. Follow along here as we jump in. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Let the brother, lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him." Let me ask you a question. If you're here today and you have ever experienced or endured a trial, a trial, the word that's used here, means adversity, affliction, trouble, something that tests us, something that breaks our peace, our comfort, or our happiness. If you've ever experienced a trial or you currently are experiencing a trial, put your hand up for me. Okay, look around. If they're not all up, every hand should be up because all of us, at some point in time, have experienced or are currently experiencing trials, okay? Some of you have come in tonight, and if I were to give you, like, pieces of paper, like name tags, and say, for every name tag, write down a trial you're enduring, you would be like, I need more name tags, I need more name tags, I need more name tags, because you are under it right now. Some of you are coming out of it, right? You just got through, and you're coming through these doors, and you're like, man, it was amazing. Like, the last year has been something I couldn't even describe, but God has brought me through, and you're, and you're there. Some of you, you don't even know, but tonight it's coming. You don't even know, but it's coming. Guys, this is very practical for us because everybody is familiar with dealing with trials and difficulties in this life. Everyone is. And so here's how James begins this letter to these people who were enduring hardship, trials, persecution. They're scattered abroad. And what is his opening challenge to them? Think of this. His opening challenge to them is, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, if I'm one of those people receiving it and that's the opening line, I might be like, you know what, let's just, let's just save that for later, right? I don't, I don't know how I would respond to that. But when you're in the midst of trials, how many of you, when you're bearing your soul to someone because you're showing, this is what I'm enduring right now, and someone's sitting across from me like, yeah, you need to just rejoice in that, brother, right? How many of us want to hear that? <laughs> we don't want to hear that. That's not what we're asking for here, right? But here's the thing. I want to make three observations tonight about trials. And I think it's important for all of us to understand this because when we think about count it all joy, we can say, how in the world could that even be possible? Has James lost his mind here that he's telling him count it all joy? Brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, no. And there's three observations I want to make. First of all, God has a purpose in our trials, okay? And some of you here tonight, you need to hear that. You may be enduring much trials right now in your life, many trials. God has a purpose in your trial. 
God has a purpose in our trials. Trials come for really three reasons. And I listened to a couple pastors. They were breaking this down. I thought it was such an excellent job. One in particular said, trials come for a variety of reasons. They come for correction. They come for direction. And they come for maturation. So if you are experiencing a trial today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it is either coming in your life because of correction, the one the Lord loves, he corrects. And so God can use trials in correcting us and bringing us to a point of repentance. It's for our correction. It's for direction. Sometimes God brings trials into our lives because he's closing a door or he's trying to direct us in the way that he wants us to go. Not because we're necessarily being disobedient, but because God wants to instruct us and he wants to teach us and he wants to move us in a particular direction. And the only way that that's going to happen is through trials. And sometimes it's strictly for our maturation. God wants us to mature in him. And James is specifically talking about in this passage the trials that are coming for the purpose of maturation. It's for their completion. It's so that they can be, the way it's worded in your text, perfect. Not perfect as it relates to sinless, but mature, complete, as they follow and respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to understand that God has a purpose in our trials. Every trial we have has a purpose. But listen, we don't always know and see what that purpose is up front, do we? How many of you guys have ever watched The Karate Kid? 1980s Karate Kid, okay? When I was a kid, I watched The Karate Kid. You had Daniel's son, you had Mr. Miyagi, right? And so when Mr. Miyagi first was teaching Daniel's son, Daniel's son didn't really know like, if he should trust Mr. Miyagi, right? Mr. Miyagi's this old man. He looks like he knows what he's doing, maybe, you know, skilled, wise, but Daniel's son's kind of like, I don't know if I should really trust this guy. And so he goes for training the Mr. Miyagi, and his initial way of training Daniel was not traditional. What does he have him do to start off with? Wax on, wax off. And he has like this parking lot full of vehicles, filthy vehicles, and he's like, go wax on, wax off, Daniel's son. And Daniel's son's like, what? I thought I was here for like karate training. And, you know, if you ever like that, like you want to get right to it. You don't want the like initial training. You want the real training. But he's like, all right. So Daniel's son goes out there like day and night and he's waxing on, waxing off. And initially, like I'm watching as a kid and I'm kind of like, man, that's brutal. Like, I don't know. What's he trying to do here? And then after that, he comes back. And the next day, and what's he tell him to do the next day? Send the floor, right? He's like, send the floor. So he has like this massive deck, like all these planks. And he's like, I want you to take this and I want you to sand the floor. And, and Daniel's son's like, what? And I'm sitting there being like, I'm out. Like if I'm a kid and I'm wanting to learn this and he's telling me this, like, nope. But he, he does it. And by the third day, you're, you're really feeling bad for, for Daniel, like a little bit, because you're like, man, this guy spent everything he's had. He, he's exhausted and he goes back and surely the training now. And what does he have him do the third day? Paint the fence, right? Paint the fence. Ah, nah, like up and down, like paint the fence. And so all this happens, and there comes a point in time where Daniel comes to Mr. Miyagi, and he's flipping out. He's mad. And he's like, you've had me doing all these stupid things. I'm here to learn karate. You've had me all these doing. And what, is, what does Mr. Miyagi do? Mr. Miyagi's there, and, he, and he's like, show me. Wax on, wax off. And he shows him. And he's like, show me, paint the fence. Show me, sand the floor. And then he's like, yeah, big deal. And then Mr. Miyagi's like, ah! like he goes at him and he starts firing at him and as he's firing on him he's like you know wax on wax off and paint the fence and paint the fence and he shows him how all of his training and as a kid you're watching it and you're like oh my goodness that's what he was doing like you get it you get it that all of that stuff that he was doing when he had no clue and he was angry about and he was questioning his teacher and he was like what are you doing you don't know what you're doing all this time he was preparing and teaching him for exactly what he needed to know. 
And there came a point in time when the light went on. Not only for Daniel, but like for every person watching the movie that thought Mr. Miyagi was crazy, mean, and just an old man that was nasty. All of a sudden, everybody's watching that, and they're like, holy cow, that's brilliant. And he got his cars washed and waxed. Like, that's fantastic. Like, you watch that, and you're like, this guy's brilliant. Mr. Miyagi's brilliant. He taught him while getting all this work done. Guys, I, I share all that because I think sometimes we can miss that when it comes to trials with our God, can't we? We miss that God has a purpose and plan in our trials. And our natural reaction sometimes when we're going through it is like, God, do you even know what you're doing? Do you even know what you're doing? I thought you said you'd, you'd be faithful to me and be there for me and you would give me answers and you would sustain me and you would care for me and this is for my growth and this is for my good. But, but I don't see any of that. What are you doing? And yet, James is calling on the believers here to let them know and remind them exactly what God is doing. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing or trying of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is what he tells the believer. While you're going through trials, Understand God has a purpose and plan to bring you to maturity in him in the midst of those trials. I love the way the Apostle Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. Listen to what Paul says here. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. Hey, when we were in Asia on this trip, we were burdened. We had a trial and affliction that hit us in Asia to the point that we felt it was beyond strength to bear. We despaired of life. We wanted everything to be done. And he says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But then he says this, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Guys, God has a very specific purpose in our trials. It's to bring us to maturity. It's to bring us to a point of dependence and reliance on him. It's to show us clearly, reveal to us clearly who he is and who we are. What we can't do, but what he can do. And so observation number one, we have to understand this. God has a purpose. Number two, God is with us in our trials. Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever felt you were dealing with something and you're like, man, I, I can't tell anybody I can't share this with anybody. I am completely isolated and alone in this. Well, one, let me encourage you, if you're ever in that position, that you should share that with brothers in Christ because that's why we're here, to bear one another's burdens, to care for one another, to love one another, to pray for one another, to encourage one another daily, the Bible says. So you should never handle that. But in the midst of trials, help us to understand this. James says, in the midst of trials, if any of you lacks wisdom, verse five, let him ask God who gives generously to all without approach and it will be given to him. You know what James says in the midst of trials? God is with us. He hears us. How many of you have ever heard that scripture? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and God will give it to them. How many of you have ever heard that before? Did you ever realize that the context of that verse is in the midst of trials, that James lays this out to the believer that was enduring hardship and trials, and he says, listen, if any of you lacks wisdom while you're going through that trial, let him ask of God, and he will give it to you. Guys, God's with us in the midst of our trials. He's with us. He hears us in the midst of our trials. 
He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, verse 5, who gives generously to all without reproach, it will be given to him, verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You know what James says here? God is with us. We can depend on him. We can call onto him, believing in him, and that he will answer us. God has answers. He has answers. He has answers when we don't know what the answers are. <laughs> he has answers for the questions that we don't even know we're going to ask yet. He has answers. And he says he's available to us. If in the midst of trials anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who will give it. And your translation might even say the word liberally, not in a political sense, in a I will not withhold it. I will give it fully to you. Who does not hold it back, he will give it to you. But he says, let him ask in faith with nothing wavering, because he that wavers is like a wave of the sea, driven by the wind and tossed. God has answers. He has instruction. He has wisdom for us. How many of you guys have ever heard of or experienced an escape room before? You know what that is? An escape room is where you go into a room and there's all these riddles and puzzles that you and your group of maybe 10 people have to figure out in a time period, say one hour, in order to get a key to get out of that room. It's called an escape room. Now, you know, the, the harshest way to do an escape room if, if people were really dangerous and they were really like they didn't care, is be like, hey, you have one hour to get out of the escape room or you know, your life's ending in an hour. But this is for entertainment. So people get in there and it's a challenge. You have one hour to get out of this room and if in not an hour you don't get out, the room's not filling with any poison or like all the oxygen's not gonna be sucked out. It's just you lose. And so it's like a pride thing. Like you wanna beat the hour. You wanna beat the buzzer. Well, we did an escape room during missions conference. And we had our missions conference here. And so to test it out, it was here at the church, we had our pastoral staff do one, and then we had the administrative staff do it after we did it. And we were trying to see who could beat the other. And so everybody was like trying, like for pride reasons here, obviously, is to win. So the guys really wanted to win. The ladies really wanted to win. And so I won't tell you who won. And me not wanting to tell you who won should tell you who won, okay? And so we're in the escape room. And as we're going through it, we got stuck. There was something that we had to figure out, and we were all stuck. We could not figure it out. Now, in the escape room, we had like two or three hints that Scott, who put together the escape room and had all the answers, he told us as we were doing this, hey, if you guys need a hint, let me know. I'll give you a hint. If you need a hint, let me know. I'll give you a hint. And we were kind of like, we don't want any hints because not only did we want to win, but we also wanted to do it without any hints, okay? And so we're struggling and nobody's, and we're all sitting there. There was one point in time where we're sitting around a table and we're just staring and time is like ticking, 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 and we can't figure out. And Scott is in the background. He's like, if you want a hint, I'll give you a hint. And so, like, we finally came to the point of, like, all right, Scott, tell us the hint. He told us, and we immediately got it. Immediately got it. Now, we lost. Oh, I didn't want to tell you that. We lost because of our pride and because we refused to get help, even though the help was available to us the whole time. Here's what I think is very interesting about believers in the midst of trials. God, the one who has all the answers, God who is in full control and authority, God who knows you and me better than we know ourselves, and God who not only knows what has happened and what we're currently dealing with, by the way, he knows what's happening tomorrow too, has told us, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask of me and I will give it. And so when we're in the midst of trials and we don't ask God, it either reveals to us we really don't believe in him as we say we do 
We believe in ourselves more than we do him, or we just refuse to accept that sometimes what we want and what God wants is not the same thing. And so in the midst of trials, not only is God showing forth that he has a purpose, but he's also with us. He's with you, even in the midst of trials. So we need to believe God has a purpose. We need to believe God is with us, and we need to ask in faith. That's what James tells them. Ask in faith, and you will receive from God. He will answer. Guys, isn't it true that sometimes the last place we go in the midst of trials is to the Lord? We try to write a check, get people on our side, do something in our own strength or our own power. We just try to figure it out. We might even use the phrase, I'll figure it out. I got this. But there comes a point in time sometimes in the midst of trials where we have to say, I don't. But God does. And so we bear it to him, believing in him. Third observation, God will ultimately deliver us from our trials. Verses 9 through 12 can sound very confusing. And I'm going to read it, and then I just want to kind of summarize it so I think it would make sense. Verses 9 through 12, it says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Verses 9 to 11, I think what he's very clearly saying here is both the rich and the poor, both the lowly and those that are exalted in the eyes of men, all experience trials. And he calls on the lowly or the poor, that in the midst of that, that they would rejoice, that they would take pride in, that they would be boastful in not their circumstances, but in the grace and deliverance that is theirs in Christ. He says to the rich that are made low because of their riches, they're made low, whether that's because the riches are removed from them, they're experiencing hardship, they're experiencing trials that they're not used to. He says, listen, rejoice in your being made low because all of your riches are gonna perish just like the flowers of the field will perish and everything else perishes, it won't last. And he's really making something abundantly clear here for both the rich and the poor. Trials will come and are there. And in both instances, there should be a rejoicing because of the glory that is ours in Christ Jesus for the poor and for the reality and revealing of the temporary nature of the riches of the rich because that shouldn't be trusted in either. And he goes on to say uh, this idea of ultimately delivering us from our trials. He says in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There is deliverance coming from the turmoil, trials, evil, and all that is in the world. There is deliverance coming. Those trials are temporary. There's an end in sight. I believe that, that James is really challenging the believer here. He's challenging them with this understanding of what really matters. The grace that is ours in Christ. The life that is to come. Many agree that the better translation of the crown of life should be the crown which is life. Speaking about eternal life that is ours in Christ Jesus. We keep our eyes fixated and focused on that. There's deliverance from our trials. So guys, knowing that, run well and finish well. I went to my daughter's cross-country meet last weekend, and she was struggling. She was running, and I could tell right away, because normally when she's running, and she's crazy like this, even when she's running, she's smiling, and she sees me, and she's like, yeah, like she does this when she's running. And I'm like, man, I, I don't know that I've ever done that when I run, okay? Like smile and like high-fiving, like thumbs up to people. I'm kind of like not doing that, okay? But she's running, and she's normally very happy as she's running. She's happy-go-lucky. So I'm waiting to see her, and she comes up over the hill, and as she's coming, I could read it all over her face. She wasn't feeling great. And so as she's running, she does this to me as she's running. 
she puts her finger down like this. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm like, she's struggling. So I tried to say something encouraging to her, you know, like, hey, keep going, finish drunk, et cetera. And then there was a second spot where I saw her coming around. And when she was coming around, she told me, she like mouthed it out as she was coming, this is the hardest course I've ever run. And I was like, okay. I'm like, what am I supposed to say to that? Like, buck up, girl. Like, like, so she keeps running. Well, there's a final stretch. There's a final stretch. There's a hill that they get to the top of. And then everything's downhill from there, the final stretch. And so I go running over, funny sight, I'm like sprinting through all these runners to get across the field, and I'm not a runner, and I'm over there, and by the time I catch my breath, and I'm waiting for her, she comes over the hill, and this is what I said to her as she was running towards the top of the hill. I said, Al, I said, Finn is strong, it's all downhill from here. And she looked at me, and she did this, and she started to run a little quicker, and then as she was starting to run a little quicker, I said this to her, I said, just catch the girl in front of you, and she took off. And she passed a couple of girls, finished very well, very strong, because there was an encouragement there. It's all downhill from here. There's an end in sight. Just finish strong. And it was a motivation. She just kept going. Guys, listen, I think that's what James is doing here when he talks to these believers in the opening of his letter that are experiencing hardship and trials that many of us will never endure to the extent that they are. He begins by telling them, listen, this is to all of you that are scattered. I know who you are. I know your circumstances. I know what you've endured. Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds because you know that the trying of your faith and the testing of your faith develops perseverance and brings you to a point of completion in Christ. While you're doing that, rejoice. And rejoice because God is with you and he hears you. So call upon him believing in him, that he'll answer you, and he will. And remember, everything about this life is temporary, but the life to come is glory, and that's yours. That is yours if you are in Christ. Man, you want to talk about encouragement as these believers who are experiencing trials get this letter from a known leader in the church? Trials might not seem so bad, when they hear that instruction. And guys, I think that same instruction is so good for us tonight because so many of us are facing trials and situations that God has allowed in our lives for the strengthening of our faith and to bring us to completion in Christ. How are we responding to it? There's a purpose here. Let me just give quickly three applications. We're not gonna spend any time on these because I want you guys to get to your groups at your tables, but application number one, in the midst of trials, be joyful. In the midst of trials, be joyful. Verse 2 tells us, count it all joy. Be joyful. How in the world can I be joyful in the midst of trials? Read again verses 1 through 12. Be joyful. Number 2, be prayerful. In the midst of trials, be the most prayerful person that you could ever be. Letting your requests be made known unto God. Asking for wisdom from God. You know what we oftentimes ask for in trials? Deliverance. You know what God tells us to ask for in trials? Wisdom. It's a huge difference because deliverance is get me out of this. Wisdom is God help me practically, skillfully to live in a way that shows forth what you're trying to teach me. Give me wisdom, not deliverance. How about that for a prayer? Be joyful, be prayerful, be steadfast. Be steadfast, unmovable, faithful, acknowledging who God is and who we are, knowing what God does and what we can't do. Be joyful, be prayerful. Be steadfast. Questions for your tables, four of them. They're up on the screen. They're also on your handout. Just look at these real quick. And you can throw them all four up there. 
so we can leave them all up. Number one, why is it so hard to count it all joy when we are in the midst of trials? Be honest about this, guys. Why is it hard? And, and it is hard. If you're at your table and someone says, no, it's easy to do that. They're lying. It's not easy. It's hard. So be honest about why is it so hard to count it all joy. Number two, what does our attitude in the midst of trials reveal about our faith? Let me make a statement here that I think is important. In the midst of trials, in the midst of trials, trials are not that which builds our faith. or uh, Trials, I'm sorry, trials are not that which um, allows us to generate faith. It's that which reveals our faith. In the midst of trials, it's not in the midst of trials all of a sudden you find faith. It's in the midst of trials your faith is revealed. Your faith is truly seen. And so when we look at the midst of trials, what does our attitude say about our faith in the midst of those trials? Number three, do we truly trust the Lord? What does trusting the Lord in the context of trials really look like? And number four, are you enduring trials tonight? How can you pray for one another this evening at your tables? If you're enduring trials, let it be known how our brothers around the table can pray for you, how you can go on and petition on your behalf before the Lord, how together, all of the tables tonight, that we can pray collectively for wisdom in the midst of trials that would allow us to skillfully live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord and strengthening our faith while we endure these trials. It is so natural for our prayer to be, God, get me out of it, and not God be glorified in it. And I think tonight we need to really focus on the God be glorified in it through me rather than God get me out of it. Nowhere here when James is talking to these believers does he say, hey, let your request be known unto God. Pray that God would get you out of there. No, on the contrary, we see the apostles and those that were martyred for their faith saying, I am set for the defense of the gospel, whether by life or by death. And that was true for so many of them. Is it true for us? I'm gonna give you guys some time tonight to look through those questions. If you can't get through all of them, don't panic. Spend some time on them tonight. Be honest with each other and then we'll wrap things up in a, in a little bit and pray. All right, guys, um, you are more than welcome when we dismiss. If there were still some requests you wanted to get to at your tables, to stick around a little longer at your tables, to share some requests with each other if you didn't get through them all. But I want to uh, just bring us back um, and, and really, again, encourage you in the next 10 weeks, these next 10 weeks, to be reading through the book of James. Uh, this is a very practical book practical instruction. I hope the questions have been insightful and helpful. As I was trying to think through these questions, these four questions, and thinking about, you know, biblically, give me an example of an individual that, that modeled um, really steadfastness, confidence, faith, trust, and a perspective on things to come rather than things in the earth. The Apostle Paul came to my mind in his attitude and perspective in many different ways. In Philippians, he talks about the preaching of the gospel. And he says that whether the preaching of the gospel leads to good things for him or evil things for him, he's going to rejoice because Christ is preached. And I will rejoice, even if that meant hardship. It was the same Paul that said, the sufferings of this present day are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will one day be revealed in us. His focus was on the things above, not on the things of the earth. And there was an attitude and perspective that Paul the Apostle had. In, in to be, in Eve, it was Paul that said, I am set for the defense of the gospel, right? Even if it cost me my life. As he endured trials, as he endured suffering, as he endured all of these different testings of his faith, I think he revealed where his faith truly was. It showed forth where his faith truly was. And I hope the same would be true of us as our faith is revealed in the midst of trials. And so hopefully this is helpful to be remembering those three observations. God has a purpose. God is with us. 
and ultimately there'll be deliverance. And so I hope you're encouraged by that. Now, next week, we're going to look at verses 13 to 18. So I wanted to just read this to you so you can prepare for next week. And again, you tell me whether or not this is practical, okay? Look at verses 13 to 18. It says, let no one say when he is tempted. Anybody ever tempted? Is this practical or not? Let no one say when he is tempted. I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each, one, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So we could ask the you know, question as a preface to tonight's study, have you ever had trials? We can ask as a preference for next week's study, have you ever been tempted? And if you have... Love to see you come back next week because I think we'll have some great practical instruction. And by the way, invite someone else that you know has been tempted before and tell them it's important for them to be here next week. Let me pray for you guys. Lord, thanks for your word. Thank you for the practical instruction from your word. I pray that you would help us as men to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, to live for him. And I pray that you would give us the strength in the midst of trials to trust in you, to call upon you, to reveal that our faith is in you. And God, that you would help us to be ambassadors for Christ even as we go from here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.